It's common for Christians to point to biblical prophecies as compelling evidence for us to consider, and Jesus himself comes up often. They insist that the Christmas narrative includes fulfilled prophecies. Isaiah 7.14 says that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and this was fulfilled by Mary. Hosea chapter 11 says, Out of Egypt I called my son, and Jesus' family had to flee to Egypt for a time after his birth. In Micah chapter 5, it's prophesied that you, Bethlehem, from you shall come a ruler, and Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And another very specific prophecy comes from Jeremiah chapter 31. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Which, they say, refers to Herod commanding that all boys two years and younger be killed in Bethlehem. So let's start with some background on the birth of Jesus. The season is upon us and, as I'm sure you know, Jesus wasn't born on December 25th or even in the wintertime, most likely. Actually, no one knows if Jesus was born, for certain. The historian Mark D. Smith, writing for the journal Catholic Biblical Quarterly, says, quote, It was the 6th century monk Dionysius Exegus who invented the dating system BCAD. Unfortunately, his calculations seem to have missed their central mark, for few still believe that Jesus of Nazareth was born in the year 1. Most scholars maintain, rather, that the first Christmas occurred between 4 and 6 BCE. End quote. There are only two New Testament passages, one in Matthew and one in Luke, that narrate the events surrounding Jesus' birth. As for the birthplace, the two accounts are in agreement that he was born in Bethlehem, but from Nazareth. However, there are a few reasons to doubt that he was actually born in Bethlehem. Biblical scholars have placed the birth of Christ in Nazareth, not in Bethlehem, which is an issue for that prophecy in Micah. These two accounts we have are not only at odds with well-established historical knowledge, but are filled with discrepancies that can't be reconciled. Apologists often claim that these differences don't amount to anything significant. Each author is simply reporting their unique perspective. They include different details, maybe emphasize different parts of the events, but their accounts are all compatible. And this could be true for some of the variants, but there are parts of the two birth narratives that are incompatible and can't be reconciled. If two accounts contradict one another, they can't both be historically accurate. Either one of them is accurate and the other is not, or neither of them are accurate. So before we even get to the actual narratives, there are already mutually exclusive claims in our two accounts regarding Joseph's heredity. The genealogies of Joseph in Matthew and Luke do not agree at all. They both place Joseph in the line of David, but one says that he's a descendant of Solomon, and the other says he's from Nathan, another one of David's 20 or so children. In Matthew chapter 1, Joseph's father is Jacob, his grandfather is Metan, and his great-grandfather is Eliezer. But in Luke chapter 3, Joseph's father is Eli, not Jacob, and his grandfather and great-grandfather are different as well. The standard move here is to claim that Matthew's genealogy is of Joseph, and Luke is giving the genealogy of Mary. However, they both explicitly say that they're reporting the genealogy of Joseph. So first let me quote Matthew's genealogy, the one that apologists agree is for Joseph and I'll just skip to the end here. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus. So that's from Matthew. And the genealogy found in Luke, which apologists say is for Mary, starts with Joseph by name. It says, quote, Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Eli, and it continues on there with the genealogy. And let me read one other translation so you get the idea. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, and so on. So it's Mary's genealogy, but Mary's name isn't anywhere near the passage. She's conspicuously absent from her own genealogy. 
If it was intended to be for Mary, well, why didn't he just say Mary, first of all? But why would the author throw in that, so it was thought, or the as was supposed, when he was describing Jesus' parentage? If we accept that by Joseph, the author really meant Mary, he wouldn't say that Jesus was the son, so it was thought, of Mary, or as was supposed, of Mary. Because Mary really was Jesus' parent. This only makes sense if he's talking about Joseph. So just read the passages. There is no way that Luke's readers would have read the text and understood it to be Mary's family tree. In both accounts, the authors explicitly state that it's Joseph's line. And in Luke, there's no mention of Mary at all anywhere near the genealogy. And he adds that little comment, so it was thought. That makes perfect sense if he's talking about Joseph, and is utterly mystifying if he's talking about Mary. Moreover, the author of Luke repeats in two other places that Joseph is a descendant of David, without giving any indication that Mary was supposed to be also. In Luke 1.27, it describes a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So here, Luke is talking about Mary and the descendants of David, but he doesn't mention that she's one of them, which would imply that the genealogy listed wasn't hers. The same thing happens again in Luke 2, 4 through 5. Again, Luke is stressing Joseph's Davidic line, and even though he's mentioning Mary, he says nothing about her also being a descendant of David, and doesn't include her. Nowhere in his entire gospel does Luke give any indication that Mary is of the Davidic line. It takes a very dishonest and forced reading of the two genealogies to argue that they don't starkly contradict each other. So, getting to the actual narratives and the prophecies they fulfill, I want to refresh our memories and summarize the two accounts. So, let's do Matthew's account first, and I'll play some storytelling music in the background. Mary is discovered to be pregnant before her marriage, and Joseph has a dream instructing him to stay with her anyway. Some wise men travel to King Herod because they had interpreted the stars and learned that there was a newborn king of the Jews. King Herod, secretly desiring to kill the child they're looking for, asks them to report back when they find the newborn. The wise men then go to Joseph and Mary's house in Bethlehem, coming back to that later. The wise men have a dream warning them not to return to Herod. Joseph has another dream warning him of danger. He gathers his family in the middle of the night and they flee to Egypt because of his nightmare. King Herod finally realizes that the wise men aren't coming back and commits the infamous slaughter of the innocents, killing boys in Bethlehem and the surrounding area two years or younger, implying some time has gone by since Jesus was born. More time goes by and Herod dies. Joseph has yet another dream, telling him that it's safe to leave Egypt, but Joseph hears that the son of Herod is ruling Judea, where Bethlehem is. And on top of that, he has yet another dream, warning him not to return to Judea. Finally, they end up in Nazareth. I'll come back to it, but it's totally clear in Matthew's account that Joseph and Mary are from Bethlehem and don't move to Nazareth until after Herod dies. So that's Matthew, and while it's still fresh in your mind, let's summarize Luke's version. Caesar Augustus orders that a census should be taken of, quote, all the world. The author adds that this took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Joseph and Mary leave their home in Nazareth to go to Bethlehem, and the author explains that this is because Joseph is from the Davidic line, and Bethlehem is where David came from. When they get to Bethlehem for the census, there's no room available for them to stay in. Mary ends up delivering her child and puts him in a manger. An angel appears to some shepherds and tells them that the Messiah has been born and how to find him, and then they go to Mary and Joseph. After that, Mary and Joseph go to the temple to perform the traditional purification rites required by Jewish law. 
According to Leviticus 12, a woman has to perform a sacrifice in the temple for a ritual cleansing 32 days after giving birth. Mary does this, and they return to their home in Nazareth, where they were at the beginning of the story. These accounts have numerous problems. To begin with, they disagree on where Mary and Joseph live. In Luke's account, their hometown is Nazareth. In Matthew's, their hometown is Bethlehem, and they only move to Nazareth later, after Herod and the flight to Egypt. Luke's account begins and ends with the family in Nazareth. Luke 1.26, near the beginning of the story, quote, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. The virgin's name was Mary. End quote. And then later on, after Jesus' birth, quote, When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. End quote. They only go to Bethlehem for a short time because of the census. When they're there, they stay outdoors, and then after Mary's purification ritual, 32 days after birth, they go back home to Nazareth. So that's Luke's account. In Matthew's account, however, they don't move to Nazareth until later. Jesus was born in Bethlehem because they lived there. There's no mention of a census. And when the wise men come, they find the family in a house, not outdoors. Moreover, Herod goes on to order that every boy in Bethlehem two years or younger be killed, not that all newborns be killed. So why would Joseph and Mary still be in Bethlehem up to two years after Jesus' birth if they were only there for a census and left after Mary's purification ritual, which is what it says in Luke? They must have been living in Bethlehem. In the middle of the night, they flee to Egypt. Once Herod dies and they leave Egypt, Joseph plans to go to Bethlehem. But since Herod's son is now king in Judea, where Bethlehem is, and since he was warned in a dream, he goes to Nazareth instead, in Galilee. According to historian Bart Ehrman, Matthew and Luke are, quote, in agreement that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, even though he came from Nazareth. But the way they both make it happen is not only different, but at odds, showing that we need to interpret each on its own merits and recognize that either one or both are historically inaccurate. The historical point, both of them knew that Jesus was from Nazareth, but they both wanted him to be born in Bethlehem, so they told stories to make it happen. But the stories are at odds, showing that the desire is being driven by an agenda rather than disinterested reportage. So let me take one more pass at summarizing a few of the differences between the two accounts. In Matthew, but not in Luke, you have the wise men, Mary and Joseph in a house, the flight to Egypt, Herod's slaughter of the innocents, and Mary and Joseph not living in Nazareth until the end, after they can't return to Bethlehem because of Herod's son. In Luke, but not in Matthew, you have the census, the shepherds, Jesus in a manger, and Mary and Joseph living in Nazareth at the beginning and returning there after Mary's purification ritual. Outright contradictions between the two accounts include the genealogies, Mary and Joseph's hometown, and the aftermath following the birth of Jesus, namely whether they went straight to Nazareth a month or so after Jesus' birth, or whether they were in Bethlehem for up to two years before going to Egypt for a period and then going to Nazareth, years after Jesus' birth. There's a whole other set of historical problems that these accounts suffer from. In Luke chapter 2, we're told that there was a decree that went out from Caesar Augustus that, quote, all the world should be registered. And as I mentioned, the purpose of this was to show that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, as was prophesied, despite being Jesus of Nazareth. 
But for one, there is no record of the census where, quote, all the world had to register. Presumably, he meant all the Roman Empire, but no such event is mentioned in any historical source. It's not believable that there was not a single record of such an event, especially one that apparently included mass migration. Which brings us to another problem. Why did Joseph have to register in the town of his ancestor from a thousand years prior? Are we supposed to imagine that everyone in the Roman Empire had to trek to the town of one of their ancestors, let alone one of their ancestors from a thousand years ago, for any purpose? A census that no one took record of. The text of Luke does not say that Joseph himself was originally from Bethlehem. So I can't imagine any other purpose for this made-up story other than to awkwardly fulfill expectations that Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem. I also wondered if maybe since Nazareth was a small town, Joseph and Mary had to travel to a bigger city to register. But Bethlehem is nearly a hundred miles south of Nazareth, and Jerusalem is north of Bethlehem so it's on the way, as were other places bigger than Nazareth. The reasoning offered in the text is that Joseph registers in Bethlehem because he is from the Davidic line. But I wonder how many people in Joseph's time could, in one way or another, trace their line back to David. And why would the government want them to do that anyway? Luke's account has other historical problems as well. The text says that this bizarre census happened when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and in the days of King Herod of Judea. Historians tell us that Quirinius did not become governor until 10 years after Herod died. And we know this in part from Josephus of all people, who's usually championed by Christians. So just to repeat that, the author of Luke claims that the census occurred in the days of King Herod and while Quirinius was governor, but Quirinius didn't become governor until 10 years after Herod was dead. And speaking of Herod, the narrative in Matthew has problems of its own. Christians want to claim that Herod's slaughter of the innocents was prophesied in Jeremiah. But like the census, there is no record of Herod ordering that all male children under the age of two be murdered. Bart Ehrman writes, quote, In terms of the historical record, there is no account in any ancient source whatsoever about King Herod slaughtering children in or around Bethlehem or any place else. No other author, biblical or otherwise, mentions this event. End quote. Josephus wrote extensively and disparagingly of Herod. And yet, he never mentioned anything like the massacre described in Matthew. Moving on to Isaiah 7.14, it's prophesied that a virgin will conceive and give birth. If you read the line in context, however, you'll see that it has nothing to do with the Messiah. It's just an incredibly boring story about Ahaz, king of Judea, who asks the prophet Isaiah what to do about Jerusalem being under siege. Isaiah says to do nothing. There is a young woman who is pregnant, and in the lifetime of her child, quote, before the child knows right from wrong, there will be prosperity in the land and the threatening powers will be dispersed. So it's a story about a superstitious king and Middle Eastern foreign policy from thousands of years ago. But as is custom in Christian circles, you cherry pick one vague line from an old story and call it a prophecy. Isaiah was prophesying, but I don't understand how anyone reading his prediction to King Ahaz could possibly think it was about Jesus. For one, the word Messiah is used a grand total of zero times in the entire chapter. There's no indication that it was supposed to be about the Messiah. But even if we accept that it was intended to be a prophecy about the birth of Christ, there's a bigger problem. Isaiah 7.14 in my English Bible says, A virgin will conceive and bear a son. But the Hebrew word Isaiah uses in the original story is not the Hebrew word for virgin. He used alma, which just means young woman, and does not signify virginity. If he intended to convey that this young woman had never had sex, he could have used the Hebrew word Bethula, which does mean virgin. 
Whoever wrote Matthew, however, didn't read the book of Isaiah in Hebrew. He read it in Greek. And the Greek translators of the Jewish scriptures had used the word parthenos in that story. It can simply mean young woman, but it also implies virginity, or at least came to eventually. The author of Matthew didn't know any of that, so he said that the prophecy of the virgin birth was fulfilled, since he didn't know that there had never been such a prophecy. Or maybe he did know and he was being deceptive. But either way, the prophecy isn't in the book of Isaiah in the original language. It's a mistranslation. Apologists try to push back on this in a couple creative ways, and to know what they're talking about, I have to bring up a text called the Septuagint, which is the earliest extant Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. It's estimated to have been written 200 years prior to the birth of Jesus, and it's quoted a number of times in the Pauline epistles and by the apostles, and according to Bart Ehrman, Matthew depended on the Septuagint. And I'm probably butchering that pronunciation. So apologists have argued that it's more likely that Parthenos wasn't a mistranslation. And I'm actually sympathetic to their case, but for reasons that won't make them happy. After all, the Hebrew to Greek translators were the experts on Greek and Hebrew, as they existed at that time in history, and they were the ones who chose to write Parthenos instead of something else. If it's such an obvious mistranslation, I guess it's possible that it slipped by them. Maybe they came in hungover that day. But it's possible that it wasn't a mistranslation. Maybe they understood Alma, at least in that particular context, to mean virgin. Also, this translation was written roughly two centuries before Christ, so there wasn't any motivation to mistranslate it at the time. The apologist Matt Slick has written, quote, If the Hebrews translated the Hebrew word Alma into the Greek word for virgin, then they understood what the Hebrew text meant here. In the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, the Jews translated the Hebrew word Alma into the Greek Parthenos. So the Jews themselves at the time understood the text in Isaiah 7.14 referred to a virgin birth. And besides, saying that a young woman will give birth to a child is not miraculous. What would be the reason for Isaiah writing that a girl will have a child? All children are born of women, so Isaiah must have had something else in mind. End quote. As for his secondary point that a young woman giving birth is not miraculous, so why mention it if you're Isaiah? I would point out that if you read Isaiah 7 in context, the reason for mentioning the woman's birth is to give a timeline. Before the child, quote, knows right from wrong, the problems the king was facing will be smoothed over and prosperity would be in the land, which is obvious if you actually read the whole passage. On his main point, we have to go into the weeds a bit to answer it. The Hebrew translators thought the Greek word parthenos fit the bill, so why say it's a mistranslation? Even though it's well known that alma doesn't mean or even imply virginity, maybe in context the translators, who were fluent in Hebrew and Greek, could tell that that's what it meant. Hebrew scholars today say that it doesn't mean virgin, but first of all, they're living after the advent of Christianity, so they could have a bias. Whereas the Septuagint was translated 200 years before Christ, so those translators couldn't have been biased in the same way. And second, language evolves. It's possible that the words in question had slightly different connotations than they do now. It's possible that when Alma was used in that context during that time period, they could tell that it was intended to mean virgin. So the original reason to reject this still stands. Isaiah could have used the Hebrew word Bethulah, which definitely does mean virgin. Although Isaiah used Alma only one time in his entire corpus, he uses Bethulah five times throughout the book of Isaiah, twice in chapter 23 and also chapters 37, 47, and 62. So if he had wanted to convey virginity, he could have used the Hebrew word for virgin, a word that he used five other times in the book. But as I mentioned, I actually grant Matt Slick's contention that Parthenos is not really a mistranslation, but for a completely different reason. It's not, as he says, that Alma could also mean virgin. 
It's that parthenos can also mean young woman, without any implication of virginity. And unlike Matt Slick, I actually have evidence that this was the case. It's clear from the Septuagint itself, which is the text in question, that parthenos doesn't always mean virgin. This is because parthenos is used in the Septuagint in other passages, when it's clear that the person in question is not a virgin. For example, in Genesis chapter 34, it's used to describe a woman named Dinah after it was spelled out that she had had sex. Since this is the Bible, she didn't lose her virginity according to her own will, but the story is unambiguous. Quote, When he saw her, he took her and raped her. When Jacob heard that his daughter had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his livestock, so he did nothing about it until they came home. Dinah's brothers were furious because he had done an outrageous thing by sleeping with Jacob's daughter. End quote. And yet, she was referred to as a Parthenos in the Septuagint, the same word that was used in Isaiah 7.14. Bart Ehrman has written, quote, Matthew did not read Isaiah in Hebrew, but in Greek. The Greek translators of the Septuagint had translated Alma with the Greek word Parthenos, which also meant young maiden, but eventually took on the meaning of virgin as well. So, according to Ehrman, the translators did not make a mistake, but rather the word evolved and acquired different connotations in the roughly 250 years between the Septuagint being translated and Matthew writing his gospel. The difference between the claim that Parthenos evolved and Matt Slick's claim that Alma evolved is that when you look at the other places where Alma was written, you can see that it's never translated as virgin the eight other times it's used in the Hebrew scriptures. On this point, the rabbi Tuvia Singer has written, quote, more than once, I've come across a Christian leader who has made the erroneous assertion that every place the word Alma appears in the Bible, it is always referring to a virgin. And each and every time I encounter this wild contention, I'm puzzled as to why these apologists do not do their research before making this claim. This is especially the case in our modern age where computer technology has made it possible to quickly and easily perform exhaustive word studies. The word Alma appears in the Jewish scriptures seven times in the feminine and twice in the masculine. And in the same way that young woman does not indicate sexual purity, in the Hebrew language there is no relationship between the words alma and virgin. The word alma only conveys age and gender. Moreover, the masculine form of alma means a young man, not a male virgin. And as expected, without exception, all Christian Bibles correctly translate young man and never virgin. Why is the masculine Hebrew noun young man in 1 Samuel 20:22? and yet the feminine form of the same Hebrew noun as virgin in Isaiah 7.14? The answer is Christian Bibles had no need to mistranslate 1 Samuel 20.22 because this verse was not misquoted in the New Testament. End quote. So to recap, the Hebrew word alma doesn't mean virgin anywhere else in the Septuagint or our English Bibles, whereas the Greek word parthenos is used to describe non-virgins in other places in the Septuagint. So parthenos is not a mistranslation in the Septuagint, strictly speaking but it is a mistranslation in Matthew, because the author took it to mean virgin. So despite all this, the original point still stands. The prophecy of the virgin birth is based on a mistranslation. A mistranslation that made it into the New Testament. Stepping back for a moment, there is a sort of elephant in the room with all the prophecies regarding Jesus. The authors of the New Testament knew about them. It would have been easy for the authors, or their many, many subsequent copiers, who eventually wrote the copies we have, to simply write the story so the prophecies were fulfilled, or make adjustments to make it clearer that they were fulfilled. Is is there's actually a prophecy in the Bible. It actually predicted the 
crucifixion of Jesus. And uh, what do you have to say about that? So if I go and look up Psalms... It was Psalm 22, 1, Psalm 22, 11 to 18, and John 19, 23, 24. That's the best prophecy in the whole Bible. It says, Do not be far from me, and trouble is near, and there is no one to help. My uh, Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey open. A uh, pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes amongst them and cast lots for my garment. You got it. What does that sound like to you? That sounds like the crucifixion. It's not a prophecy. Yeah. Um, what do you mean? That's that's almost that's the details of the crucifixion that happened like way after that was even written. No, no, no. A prophecy no. is a foretelling of something. It has to explicitly be, this is something that's going to happen in the future. Well, what did you think that sounded like to you? It sounded like someone that wrote the New Testament knew about that psalm and wrote in the New Testament something that would make that appear to come true. Look, if you read John 19, 23, 24, mm-hmm. you're going to see the exact same thing that happened many exactly. years after that was written. Exactly. Sure. And the author of John knew about that psalm. You, do you think they didn't know about these verses? That's all I have for you today. I have two new patrons to thank, James Clausen and Dr. Ace Manliness. Thank you, James, and thank you, Doctor. And I want to thank my patron Hall of Fame, Peach Machine, Jesta, Phil Stillwell, and Richard Crossan. And you can support this show on a per-episode basis at patreon.com counter where you can earn early access to every episode and access to bonus episodes. If you don't have the money to support on Patreon but you still want to accidentally start a religion by lying about your pregnancy, you can add me on Facebook, leave a five-star review, or tell your friends about the podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll see you next time.